Uh, The reading this morning is taken from Revelation chapter 20. Uh, It's verse 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. For the time is near. Please pray with me. Father, the the entire universe stretched from end to end and from top to bottom is not big enough to contain you. It's too small to be a house for you. And yet you have ordained that we would hear from you this morning from these five verses. And who are we to speak about or to describe you or to comprehend you in your greatness? Father, in every way on both sides of this pulpit, we cast ourselves upon you for your Spirit's ministry this morning because life and death are found in these five verses. Salvation and condemnation are found in these five verses. The glory of your Son and the triumph of his work and your own greatness are found in these verses. And I pray that you would let them loose like lions in the sanctuary that you would prevent me from hindering in any way the display of your glory and that you would help us to learn in humility and eagerness from you. And would you be pleased, Father, today that because of your Son's work, some who entered this sanctuary as non-Christians would leave it as those who know because they have trusted in Christ alone and have turned from their sins and repentance, who know today by the witness of your Spirit that their names will be found written in that book of life. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I am a ranker, inveterate ranker, and I, uh, I was thinking this week that um, I have never preached or taught from a passage as serious as these five verses. So I don't know what this is going to be like. It may be the five most serious verses in the entire Bible. So I don't have any illusions of 
of being able to say everything that needs to get said. I have lived my entire life, like most of you, I assume, uh, roughly 93 million miles away from the sun. And uh, that's an inconceivable distance to me. I've never counted to 93 million before. I don't even know how long that would take. I did once a second. I should have done this. This is such a, a me thing to do. Multiply how long 93 million seconds would be. And put your calculators away because I don't want you to tell me at the end of the service because it means you didn't listen. But, I mean, think about it. To put that distance in perspective, what that means is that, su- it, is that sunlight leaving the sun and traveling at 186,000 miles a second takes like eight minutes to get to New Smyrna Beach. 186,000 miles a second, and it still takes like eight minutes to get to the beach. And the brightness of the sun, even at 93 million miles, right? I know that the brightness of the sun, even at that distance, will be so, is so great at New Smyrna Beach that if I don't wear my sunglasses, I'm going to get a headache real fast. And I know that the intensity of that sunlight will be such that if I don't lather up with sunscreen or put a t-shirt on, it's, not going, to take, it's going to take less than an hour for me to become a lobster. Now, that's, I know those things to a certainty. I've experienced them, and so have you. And it's amazing to me that even at such a, uh, a vast distance, I remain, we all remain so vulnerable to the power of the sun. Now, can you imagine what it would be like if that gap of 93 million miles were suddenly closed totally and we were brought, as it were, face to face with that sun? I mean, you know what would happen. I mean, long before we got face to face with the sun, we would be incinerated. And the reason for that is because our physical constitution is not made to withstand that kind of intensity. Now, our text this morning is about a face-to-face encounter that is inevitable, that is unavoidable, that is not hypothetical, but is actual and faces every single person who has ever or will ever live. And it is a face-to-face encounter with God. And so in this last vision of Revelation 20, what John sees is the day when every man, woman, and child who has ever lived or will ever live will face God. And each of us will have to give account of ourselves to Him for our lives. Now, friends, I ask you, if our Son's brightness can blind us, and if its heat can burn us at a distance of 93 million miles, what will the outcome be when we as sinners stand face to face with that omnipotent brightness and that holy glory, that one who has made all things that God from whom are all things, and through whom are all things, and to whom are all things. What will the outcome be as you think about that? Do you have hope? God wants you to have hope. 
as you face that encounter. He doesn't want anyone here to leave without hope as you face that future. But it will be a hope that is rooted in Jesus Christ alone. God wants that for every single person who entered this sanctuary. Yes, it is a a fearsome prospect. But God has an answer for that fearsomeness in His Son. And He means to not just show you, but for you this morning and me to depend upon it, to entrust ourselves to His Son. No matter what road you're on in life, no matter what path you are following in life, whatever that road is, it is going to lead to that judgment seat of God. It's going to lead to His throne. And God is is wanting you to be aware of that this morning and to discover that His Son alone can be your sanctuary and my sanctuary this morning. And I just want you to think, if, if we can be blinded and burned by our Son at the beach, then what will it be like to stand in the presence of the one who with a single word spoke a trillion stars into being. And so this morning, I've got three headings from our passage that I want us to consider that the final judgment shows us. I think these will be of relevance to to everyone here, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, the greatness of God the greatness of man and the greatness of Jesus Christ. Let's think first about uh, the greatness of God. And that really is the beginning of uh, our passage this morning. You notice the first thing that John sees in his final vision is a vision of God. And he sees God seated on a great white throne. And before he ever begins to describe the mechanics of what's going to happen on the Day of Judgment, there's a single verse, verse 11, where God says, I saw a great white throne and him sitting on it and earth and heaven fled away. And so the first thing we need to learn about the day of judgment is that it begins and ends with the glory of God. The day of judgment, the main issue on the day of judgment is the glory of God and his greatness. You cannot understand the day of judgment. You cannot understand the Bible's teaching about the reality of judgment, its nature or its urgency, unless you first reckon with the greatness of God. And that's the first thing John sees. This is the same God whom Paul just falls down in worship before at the end of Romans 11. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's who we're looking at here. John sees a throne, which has been a big theme in the book of Revelation. And what that means, again, it's worth reviewing, is that when we reach the end of our lives, when we reach the end of history, what we're going to discover is that the real meaning of the universe and therefore the real meaning of our lives is that they are a monarchy. You know, I don't care how many PhDs you're going to get. I don't care how long you're going to work at that super collider outside Geneva. I mean, you can, you can discover the Higgs boson particle and you can discover the, the little piece on the bottom of the Higgs boson particle and you can come up with a theory of everything and you can have 
every Nobel Prize possible, but if you don't know in the end that the fundamental nature of the world is that it is a monarchy, then God will call you a fool. So at the end, earth and heaven flee away. All the physics of the first creation flees away. And there's a throne. Because that is reality. And it's a great throne. There is no throne above that throne. There is no power or authority greater than God's. There is no one who deserves worship like God. There are no, there are no potentates or authorities who are worthy of the kind of attention that God is worthy of. It is a great throne. And it is a great white throne. Which means that it is a throne of moral perfection, of purity, of righteousness. And so the first feature of the day of judgment is a God who is king, who rules all that is. And he is not only omnipotent, but he is morally perfect and righteous. So in the end, the nature of reality is that there is a king and he is going to uphold righteousness. Truth and righteousness are not societal constructs. They are not sociological phenomenon that develop, that evolve in response to changing living conditions. They are the bedrock of reality. God is omnipotent and he is righteous. And you'll notice this very strange phrase, creation, fled away. Earth and heaven fled away. What is that about? I think there are two things that are being emphasized there. Number one, in the Bible, and this is important as you piece together the, the pieces of the Bible's worldview. And, and the, one of the very important pieces of that worldview is that God is creator. And that therefore God's relationship to creation is one in which God is over creation. He's involved in it. And creation is totally dependent upon God. But God is not dependent upon creation. Right? So earth and heaven flee away. The first heaven and the first earth flee away in the end. And there's no place for them. God's existence and authority and power are unaffected. God does not need the universe in order to exist. He's in the universe, but he is distinct from his creation. He is never dependent upon what he has made. That's the first thing, is that what's being emphasized is the power of God. You know, the fact that God is transcendent doesn't mean that he's distant from his creation. It just means that he's different from his creation. But there, I think there's a second reason that we see uh, earth and heaven f- fleeing away. And it is because this is the first heaven and the first earth. And the first heaven and the first earth are tainted and polluted and damaged by our sin. And when history reaches its conclusion, what's going to happen, and we're going to s- start to see it next week as we move, God willing, into chapter 21, is we're going to see that God brings, as part of his redemptive plan, the climax of it, he brings the new heavens and the new earth He renews creation. He doesn't take us away to heaven. He brings heaven down. Your kingdom come. 
Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the breach that our sin has introduced between earth and heaven is fully mended. And now earth and heaven are made one. That's what we'll see next week. And in order for that to happen, the first creation flees away. Now, that's a mystery. I don't know exactly how that's going to work, but that's what the text is teaching us. So we see God's glory in his person. We see it in his throne. We see it in his relationship to creation. Friends, we need to take God more seriously than we do. None of us takes this God as seriously as we should. We have such small views of him. And just in this one verse, there is this massive announcement of who God is. And it's meant to get all of our attention. You know, this summer I went to uh, Washington, D.C. with the family on vacation. I took a lot of pictures. And if I showed you the pictures that I took of Washington, D.C., they would be true pictures, right? I mean, I didn't doctor them up. I didn't Photoshop them. When I took a picture of the White House, it was a picture of the White House. But does that picture contain all the glory of the White House? No, it's imperfect. It's this rendition that's incomplete. And Psalm 19, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. That doesn't mean the heavens contain all the glory of God. It just means they tell the story of the glory of God. It doesn't mean they exhaust the depths of the glory of God. And the actual glory of God is to, is to the universe where there are trillion stars and where supernovas happen all the time and scales that we can't comprehend. All of that which declares the glory of God, that is to the real, true, actual glory of God. Maybe as a little sliver of my pictures of Washington are to the real Washington. Oh, God, it's so big. It's so massive. And we need to be humbled by that vision. We're going to stand before that God, each of us, at the end of our lives. And when we do, there will be an accounting for our lives. That's what our text is teaching us. Do you notice, starting in verse 12, after the throne is seen, what happens next is that all the dead are raised all the dead, those who have died in the Lord and those who have not died in the Lord. And everyone stands. There's a general resurrection. Uh, people are united again with their bodies. And we all are judged before the throne of God in our bodies. And there is God, the supreme king of the universe. And he is rendering the final definitive verdict on every event and every person and every creature in all the universe. That's what's happening. God is exercising his kingly prerogatives. He alone has the authority and the right to say what is right and what is wrong. He is an absolute king. He is not soliciting opinions here. And do you notice that this judgment is universal in its scope? Everyone is judged. Verse 12, and they were judged. The dead were judged. Verse 13, and they were judged. And notice every kind of person. It doesn't matter. Everyone's equal on that day. It is the great and the small. Doesn't matter what your background is. The great and the small. There are certain kinds of lives that we learn or that we're taught, and we are, I confess, I am far too eager a student in this regard. We, we learn to overlook certain lives. And we spend so much of our lives trying to distinguish ourselves from one another. 
And I'm not saying all that that is bad. I'm just saying that sometimes it obscures the most important equality that exists among people, which is that we are all creatures who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in the end, it's that equality that is going to matter. That's what's going to define humanity on that day of judgment. Everyone is equal at the foot of that judgment seat. Paul says in Romans 14, 10 and 12, he says, For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God, and each one of us shall give account of himself to God. It doesn't matter what your background is, friend. It doesn't matter if you're a great man or woman of the earth, or it doesn't matter if you're a small man or woman of the earth. You are accountable to God, and you will answer Him for your life. And one other application here that I think is so important is that there will be justice. We see this reckoning. God is going to, going to impose a, a universal judgment. The scope is unlimited. It's universal. And that means, friends, that there will be justice in the end. There will be an answer. No matter which direction you go in life, you will, you will reach in the end this judgment seat of God and you will give an answer. So, so friends, if you are a non-Christian this morning, and if in one way or another you have been trying to run from your accountability to God, and you've been trying to evade and elude of what God has been saying to you, maybe through a family member, maybe through something you've read, maybe through sermons you've sat under, maybe uh, through the influence of a friend, and you've just been trying to run away from it, thinking that you're going to be able to get away with things. Let me say to you, as we look at these five verses, that that strategy not only is doomed to failure, but it's unnecessary. You see, what the Gospel says to you, my non-Christian friend, is number one, you can't hide from this God. And number two, and this is what is so lovely for me to be able to share with you, because of Christ, you don't have to hide from Him. You see, God has made a way for you to come out in the open and acknowledge that you are accountable to Him. That you have sinned and fallen short of His glory. And to do so in safety because God at His own initiative, just like in Isaiah 6, unbidden by you or me from the wealth and the treasury of love in His heart, purposed a redemption in which for the sake of sinners who rebelled against Him, He would send His beloved Son into the world. This was all God's idea. Send His Son into the world to live the life that you and I should have lived but didn't and to die the death that our sins deserved. And then to raise Him from the dead to prove that He was the means by which God would be offering grace and pardon and amnesty to the world. To raise Him from the dead and then to offer Him to sinners across the ages through very tongue-tied preachers and witnesses and books so that you wouldn't have to hide from Him. <laughs> There's no one like this God. And if you're a Christian, I want you to find comfort this morning in the reality that there will be justice in the end. 
This vision of God's inescapable judgment is meant to strengthen us and to provide us with great comfort as many of us live with very difficult, painful memories of wrongs that we have suffered at the hands of others. And when we see that the great and the small, all the dead will be raised and will stand before the throne of God and give account of themselves to God for what they've done in their bodies, friends, that should comfort us. People will not get away with things. No one will. And in the end, friends, it is confidence in the fact that God is a perfect moral governor of this universe. It's that confidence that nothing will slip through the cracks of His righteous eyes. Nothing will slip through the cracks of His righteous and omnipotent hands. But there will be a final righteous reckoning and accounting for every action, thought, word, and deed. It is that confidence, friends, if you have been a victim of some wrong or injustice, it is that confidence then that is the foundation for you to be freed from bitterness and from the drive to take vengeance into your own hands and it frees you to love and forgive even your enemies. Now, I know it's harder to work that out moment by moment, but that is the reference point that you need to keep touching in order for that to happen in your life. So on that judgment day, God's glory will be seen in judging all universally. It will be seen, secondly, in that the standard applied to all will be the same. There is a universal objective standard. Now, you notice that... When everyone is standing before the throne of God, books are open. There's one set of books which contains the deeds of everyone. And there is a second book which is called the book of life. Now, for present purposes, I'm just going to focus on that first book. The second book of life I will deal with in my final point. So what is that first book? Well, in that first book, I mean, the best way I know to understand this is there's a list of names, as it were. This is an image. This is symbolic. Okay, the books represent God's unfailing memory that includes everything that doesn't leave anything out, that the final judgment is based upon all the evidence, not some limited sampling of it or maybe some stuff was deemed irrelevant. Everything is relevant and everything is considered. And in that first book, there's everyone's name in one column. And the column to the right, as it were, is a list of all the deeds for every person. Everyone will be judged. And everyone will be judged according to their deeds. And the whiteness of the throne, remember, means that the standard by which those deeds will be evaluated is an objective standard. God will not grade on a curve. It will not do in that day to look to your left and say, well, I'm not as bad as him. I'm not Chairman Mao. I'm not Adolf Hitler. I'm not a murderer. You see this... Vision eliminates that kind of thinking. It's very widely held, that kind of thinking, that God will essentially grade on a curve. Well, he doesn't, and he won't. There's an objective standard, and the standard is God's moral perfection. 
It's his character as expressed in Christ, as demonstrated in Christ, a man who lived every moment of his life in conformity to the law of God. I know some of you say, well, wait a second. He's God. He created everything. How can his moral perfection be my standard? That's not just. And God anticipates that argument. Which is why one of the aspects of the gospel, one of the aspects of Jesus' ministry is that is so important for us to understand is that Jesus becomes the gold standard, a man who answers for the sins of men, a man who lived under the same temptations that we live and yet who firmly upheld the law of God. And so when Paul is preaching in Athens in Acts 17... He says to the Athenians who think he's a nut. God has fixed a day in which he's going to judge the world. He's summoning all men to repent because he has fixed a day in which he is going to judge the world in righteousness through a man. And he's given proof of this by raising him from the dead. Jesus is the standard. A man is the standard. On that day, God is not going to grade on a curve. It's going to be the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is going to be what we're all measured against. So if you have a vision of what it means to be a Christian or what will please God that that incorporates even a little bit of your own work, you have gone astray from the biblical gospel. If you think that some of your deeds can in any way qualify you, because you're not as bad as the next guy, then you've misread the standard that will control on that day, which is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the most decisive deed of all on that list is how you respond to Jesus. There is no second chance on the other side of the grave. You'll notice this is a courtroom scene, but it's not a trial scene. It's a sentencing hearing. All the evidence is already in. By that day, all the evidence is in. No one is given a chance to make an argument about their life. All the evidence has come in. Now what's going to happen is that God is going to mete out the the just sentence. So don't think that there is a second chance on the other side of the grave. There is no appeal. When you take your last breath on this side of death, that is the end of your closing argument. And so what case... Is your life making, friends? Is your life, are you building a case from your life before God where you're trying to commend your own deeds to God? I tell you, in love that will fail. It is love that warns you of these things. The most real love issues the most severe warnings. Jesus spoke more about the reality of hell than anyone in the rest of the Bible. The greatest love draws forth the most urgent warnings. Don't build your life as though it were a case that you could make out of your own righteousness because you have none. You must compare yourself to Jesus Christ. You must see Him for His perfect love to the Father his perfect submission to the Father, his zeal for the glory of God that knew no ups and downs, that was unremitting and constant, a life that was fully yielded to God's design for man. 
And friends, measured against that standard, none of us can stand on our own. The only way you can entertain illusions about your own works is to keep Jesus far from your view. God wants you to know that there will be a day of reckoning. And He wants you to know that on that day of reckoning, every man, woman, and child will be called to answer before Him. And the standard will be perfect righteousness. And the evidence will be the deeds of your life. And the most decisive deed by which you will be measured is how you respond to the Word of Christ. That Word of Christ is so powerful and God has charged it with such eternal significance that if you turn from your sins and you give your life to Christ and you entrust yourself to His sin-bearing substitution in your half, then that will outweigh all of your deeds in the sight of God. It is an amazing grace. The second greatness, and that's a longer point than the other two, so please don't panic. The second theme that we see here is the greatness of man. Now, I realize that might surprise you because we're talking about final judgment in which uh, I just told you in an extended meditation that no man can stand on his own before God's throne. But friends, think about it. This is another feature of the biblical worldview that is shocking to non-Christians. I know it has continued to shock me since my conversion 28 years ago. And it is how clearly and dramatically the Bible teaches such a high view of mankind. Which is the opposite of what people think the Bible teaches. People think that if you have a high view of God, you will push man down. But that is unbiblical. Because in the Bible's worldview, God created man to be God's image bearer. So the higher God is the more dignity man has because man is the image bearer of God. One of the great scandals of American evangelicalism, in my opinion, is that we let our culture get away with claiming that a, only a godless worldview can truly elevate man to his or her proper greatness. That's a lie. If we knew our Bibles better, if we believed our Bibles more, if we were bolder about what the Bible taught, we would be the ones who would be at the forefront talking about the dignity of every human life. It would be we who would understand that every sphere of human activity is meant to be a place in which God is displayed in His glory and in His beauty and the privilege of doing that and the responsibility, yes, for doing that has been given to man. How does the final judgment of man prove the greatness of man? Well, why would God bother to judge us if we didn't matter? Why would we even come onto his radar screen? Do you see what final judgment of man means? It means that every single human life is consequential. It means that every single aspect of every single human life is consequential and matters. And not just matters temporally, but matters eternally. God is saying to us, as we look at the reality of coming judgment, He is trying to show us in His mercy how eternally significant our lives are. And as I said earlier, We have learned very well 
how to overlook certain categories of life. There are certain types of people, certain types of achievements, certain types of endeavors, certain types of accomplishments, certain types of goals that we say that kind of life matters more than this kind of life, which lacks those things. We do that all the time. And in our darker hours, when we see that we are not there, we think very poorly of ourselves. And so one of the most exciting things to me about the gospel, one of the most exhilarating things, even about this doctrine of final judgment, is the news that God is showing us that every life matters eternally. We are not animals. You see, it is never God who trivializes man. It is only man. It is only men who trivialize man. You take God out of the picture... And just think about the last 200 years. You take God out of the picture. You call into question all supernatural assumptions. You, uh, you embrace radical skepticism so that man is left on his own standing in the field of creation. And where do you end up? You end up, friends, with a view where people are unable or unwilling to distinguish between man and every other kind of animal. Where we are effectively nothing more than cosmic driftwood. And friends, that's not a very high view of man. That's a low view of man. You see, it is never God who trivializes men. It is men who trivialize men. Every life matters. Because every life will answer to God. Every life is eternally consequential. We will pass. We will encounter. We will never have a conversation with somebody who doesn't matter. And this is a great and tragic irony that we let people get away thinking that their lives are trivial. The way we speak to people, the way we small talk with them, the way we address them, uh, the way we steer away from certain people and gravitate toward others. We are communicating what we think about the relative value of lives. And in the end, friends, all lives will be equally important before God. And not just every life, but every part of every life. Did you, did you read the reflection quote? I know it was a little bit long this morning. It's from Harry Blamers, who was a student of C.S. Lewis. Now I have your attention. He's a student of Lewis at Cambridge. And he wrote this book called The Christian Mind. And one of the features is just an amazing book. This book was recommended to me 20 years ago, and I just picked it up about a month ago. It is just blowing me away. I'm just kicking myself. I didn't read it 20 years ago. But he just makes the point that on the one hand, you have a secular, godless worldview, which essentially views the significance of human life as, you know, all that matters. You're going to live 60 to 70 years, maybe, maybe a little bit longer now. And uh, what matters is acquiring things and maximizing your comfort and pleasure. And at the end of that life, you know, maybe you'll get to see your grandkids and maybe you'll have some nice vacations or maybe not. Right. Maybe you'll be a university president who retires and then a month and a half later dies. I'm pretty sure that wasn't what he had planned. On the one hand, you have that whole approach to reality, which is the majority report in our culture. Maximize pleasure and joy within the bounds of 70, maybe 80 years. And on the other hand, you have the Christian worldview, which is reinforced here by this final judgment scene where God is showing us that your life matters so much 
You have to view it in light of eternity. So the decisions you and I make in this life have eternal ramifications. Now, I ask you, which one of those two worldviews practically assigns greater importance to human life? It's not even close, is it? Friends, we need to think about this. God is telling all of us that our lives matter. And they matter eternally. So, if you're a Christian, what I call you to do and encourage you to do is take another look at your life. Take another look at your life informed, having your imagination informed by Scripture from God's perspective. And see in those different arenas of your life opportunities for you to display the kingdom and rule of God. Your life is not like other people's lives. God is your king and you know it and you serve him. Reapproach your life in that way. And if you're a non-Christian... What this tells you is that your life is something for which you're accountable in every area. There is no religion department that God looks at and says, well, all the other things you know, in your life, I really just care about your religion department. Well, your life, your whole life is about worship. And so God is going to look at the whole life. He's going to look at every part. He's the king. Right? He, from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Your thought life, your finances, your sex life, your, your mental abilities, your emotional capacities, your work, your family relationships. All the opportunities He's given to you. Your education, the skills, the wisdom He's entrusted to you. Even the suffering that you've gone through. All of that is God's property. And, and you're, going to give a, you're going to give an account for that to God. And if you're a non-Christian and you hear that, that whole inclusive approach, you hear that insistence that God is going to call you to answer for all that, well, that is just terrifying news. But let me, let me show you again what, what amazing news the gospel is because God comes right in as He announces that all of life will be, all, all of our life will be something for which we give an answer. And he, what He offers you this morning in Jesus Christ is a human life of perfection to answer for you. You see, because none of us under that kind of scrutiny can build a case for our lives before God on our own. None of us can stand before the brightness and glory of His holiness on the basis of our own deeds and find security and safety. But the news of the Gospel is that God has sent His Son into the world to do what no man, woman, or child beside Him has ever done or is capable of doing, which is to fulfill the law of God in every sphere and every arena and and at the culmination of His life of perfection to give His life as a substitute on the cross to bear the penalty for those who had not. The kindness of God is staggering. It is the greatest love that issues the most urgent warnings. And parents, you know exactly what I mean. Let's finish with the greatness of Jesus Christ. Which is shown in the contrast between the two sets of books. 
Now, I told you we'd get to the second book, the book of life, and I want to keep that promise. But let's remember what the first book is. The first book is a book of our deeds. And in that book, the image, this is the evidence by which we will be judged. The, the, the book is our names and all of our deeds. Now, you notice If someone's name is only written in that first book, they are not saved. You notice that? Only if someone's name is in the second book are they spared the lake of fire. Only if their name is in the book of life will they enter into the internal enjoyment of God's kingdom. Anyone whose name is only in that first book which contains our deeds will be thrown into the lake of fire, will suffer eternal punishment. And what that means is that not only is every person and every deed recorded in that first book, but what it means is that no person will be vindicated on the basis of what's in that book. Everyone will be condemned whose name is only in that book. And what that means is that no one should have any confidence in their deeds. If you needed evidence biblically for turning away from confidence in your own works to trust only in Christ, well, there's your evidence. It is so common for people to say, hey, you know, I try to lead a pretty good life and my confidence is that my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. Have you heard that before? I've heard that before. I used to say that. But do you see how this image just completely blows that away? Because if that were the case, if that was God's standard, then friends, you wouldn't need the second book. Because if God's standard was, well, the 50.1% solution, you just have a little bit more good deeds than bad deeds, you'll be saved. Then you could record all that in the first book, couldn't you? It's your deeds. But there's a second book. There's a second book. There's a second book that man didn't write. But that is authored by the heart of God. It's so mighty that, that to have your name recorded in the book of life It will supersede and override and overpower all the evidence of all the deeds which can lead to nothing for you except condemnation. Oh, friends, do you understand that unless your name is written in the second book, you have no hope. You have no confidence as you face that inevitable encounter, face-to-face encounter with God. But God, praise be to Him in His mercy, has written this second book. It is a book that God's heart has authored. It is a book that tells the story of the greatness of Jesus Christ. Consider what a great book this is, my friends. Consider what deeds it records. The deeds of the Son of God who emptied Himself to take on the form of a bondservant, who laid aside His glory so that He might redeem a people upon whom the Father has set His love. Consider what hope is offered through this book 
the hope of forgiveness and eternal life and membership in God's kingdom. Consider what magnificent promises God's heart has authored and included in this book. The promise that if you merely repent of your sins and trust in Christ alone, your sins will be forgiven and your iniquity will be taken away and you will be made a son and daughter of God. Consider what God has written from his heart in this book, my friends. Oh, praise be to God that there is another book. A book that demonstrates a love unlike any others. Friends, your name must be in this book if you are going to be a person who enters into the kingdom and who withstands the scrutiny of God on that last day. If your name is written in this book, there's hope for you. We've seen this book already in chapter 13, verse 8. Here it's just called the book of life, but in chapter 13, verse 8, this book is called the book of the life of the Lamb who has been slain. And that tells the story of its power. Why is it that, that a book... Uh, that the book, why is it that the book of life would have such power? Because it records the deeds and records the promises and chronicles the work of the Lamb who has been slain. And it is from that substitute who has borne the sins of His people in their place and His resurrection that eternal life flows. And friends, if your name is in that book, oh, if your name is in that book, You will be in God's kingdom forever. And you will enjoy the forgiveness of your sins and fellowship with God. Friends, the question you should be asking is, can I know whether my name is written in that book? Oh, to have my name written in that book. What could be more important a question for me to consider this morning than that question? Is my name in that book? Because if it is not, then I am doomed to perdition. But if it is, then I will enter into the joy of my Master. How can I know if my name is in that book? God is not going to show you the pages of the book. But He has shown you Christ. He has shown you Christ, who is the Lamb who has been slain. And the life from that book, the life that book confers, comes from that Lamb who's been slain. And it flows to all who have returned from their sins and who have trusted in that Lamb and in His substitutionary death alone for their confidence before God. If that is the confession of your heart, then friends, you will find that your book, that your name has been written in that book. On that great day. So there is nothing more urgent for you and I to consider this morning. God has shown us the end of history. He's shown us that in the end, right, we will have this face-to-face encounter with Him. And on our own, left to ourselves and only our deeds, we will not have a basis for standing or surviving that encounter. But if, friends, your confidence is not in your deeds and you repent of that confidence and turn to Christ and His deeds instead, then you will enter in to the kingdom which Christ died and rose again to secure and bring to His Father. Don't waste the grace of God 
Don't squander it. Don't move on to television this afternoon. Do business with your maker. Let's pray. Father, this morning, with sobriety and humility, we pray for the work of your Spirit to safeguard the seed of your Word so that there would be a harvest of eternal life that would be reaped from this hour. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.